Lindsay works in her basement both day and night. On the dark history of polygamy, she sheds needed light. Let's at least help her pay for pens and Diet Coke. Cause staring polygamy in the face ain't no joke. Just ask Anna. A new poem by Carolyn Pearson. She alone is responsible for its stupidity, but she means every word. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Born Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And this is part two in our episode 84, Polygamy Controversies. This will be four parts of episode 84, talking about the different controversies surrounding polygamy. One of the big controversies is John C. Bennett. And he, you've heard his name a lot and we're going to talk about him today. And I've brought on someone who you all know who's been on the podcast before, but who is writing an article and will soon be publishing an article on John C. Bennett. That person is Mormon historian Brian C. Hills. Can you say hello, Brian? Hi, Lizzie. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming back. It's always fun to have you on. So for those who don't know, I like you and I were just talking about earlier, everybody throws out the name John C. Bennett. We know him as a scoundrel, right? That's the the name that gets thrown around because of the book, uh, The Saintly Scoundrel. But John C. Bennett is sort of the man, the myth, and the legend to me. I, in reading, I got to read an early draft of your article, which was fantastic. And it was interesting for me because I was sort of torn on who this man really is and what he was really about because there's so much, I think, mythos attached to him as almost this storybook villain. And it's really hard for me to sort of parse out who he is. So do you want to kind of give us a primer on who John C. Bennett was and why he was involved with Mormonism at all? I'm sure. Uh, Bennett is an interesting person. He uh, had... A great ability. The guy had charisma. He was intelligent. And uh, he was 36, 35 when he arrived in Nauvoo. But prior to that time, he had made connections with several colleges. He was a physician. He had, he was a uh, brigadier general in the Illinois uh, militia. He knew politicians. They knew him. His reputation wasn't really that positive, but he had a lot of energy. And when he heard about the Mormons settling on the Mississippi, he wrote a letter to Joseph Smith inquiring if he could be welcome. And Joseph's response was, let all who are interested come and partake of the poverty of Nauvoo. That was his his invitation to to Bennett. And Bennett showed up a few weeks later. This would have been probably October uh, probably September of 1830, no, 1840. And we don't know exactly what day he arrived there, but he did uh, speak in the general conference of October of 1840. And that's really the first day that I've been able to nail down that he was actually in Nauvoo. So it's interesting to note, you know, someone mentioned that he helped bring about ketchup. And I think Russell Stevenson said that he sort of pioneered poultry farming or made some advancements in that way. And so this is this is the thing. This man was had a lot of irons in the fire and obviously was a very 
smart, very brilliant man. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and and he had he he was experienced with people. He had uh, people skills that Joseph uh, was much rougher, less sophisticated. And Bennett uh, arrives in town, and he's he's more fashionable and and suave, I guess you could say, than Joseph. And Joseph picks up on this, and and there seems to be the some influence that he would have he had on Joseph with respect to some of the things that were written after Bennett arrived that reflected using foreign language terms that Joseph really hadn't used much before Bennett arrived but but that was apparently to show that he was more educated and, and things of this nature so there's no doubt that Bennett had influence on Joseph Smith and that Joseph was trying to adopt some of these these uh, gifts and skills that Bennett manifested this is why he makes it such an interesting like storybook character for me, though, because he calls himself a general. He's a doctor. He's the mayor for a time. Um, he invent. He's an inventor. He is uh, a famous womanizer, I guess. And so there's all of these different aspects to him. And it's really hard, at least for me, to tell what is accurate and what isn't, which is why I brought you on to talk about this, because... Um, the thrust of your article is about Bennett's credibility. And of course, as John Hamer and I talked about in last episode, uh, Bennett has been used to show that Joseph Smith actually didn't practice polygamy. The, the Richard and Pamela Price, who have done the Joseph Smith fought polygamy um, polemic, use Bennett to show that he wasn't a polygamist. And then you have um, critical Mormon historians who would say, who used Bennett to show what a scoundrel Joseph Smith is. And it's really interesting because everybody agrees that John C. Bennett isn't necessarily a reliable, uh, consistent witness, but yet everyone parses out different pieces of what he says. So why don't you tell us about what your article is about and what you think about John C. Bennett? Great. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, I, uh, as I was researching Joseph Smith's polygamy back in 2007 and all uh, with Don Bradley, and we were gathering evidences, we honestly did not know what we would find. And uh, there was a part of me that was kind of wondering, am, am I going to discover something about Joseph that's going to make me disbelieve? And, and that didn't happen. But one of the things that was troubling at that point in time for me was Bennett's claims. And if you read virtually every author prior to probably my books coming out, they almost all of them say that that he was a polygamy confidant of Joseph Smith. And if that were true, the things that he said about Joseph, and he portrays Joseph as a womanizer, seeking Sarah Pratt as a wife, and Nancy Rigdon, seeking kisses from other men's wives, and just carrying on as a libertine, um, it's hard to dismiss that out of hand just because you don't like it. And so we wanted to try to contextualize John C. Bennett. Was he really close, as close to Joseph Smith as authors like Todd Compton, uh, Richard Van Wagner, Fawn Brody? I mean, I can go down the list. They, they almost all portray Bennett as this right-hand man of Joseph during 1841 and 42 till he's excommunicated. And there is some evidence to support this. Um, when he first arrived there in Nauvoo, he boarded with the Smiths for 39 weeks. Now, he later paid for that, uh, a sum each week. Um, and he, But that tells you that they were in close quarters. Now, 
you wouldn't think they were talking about polygamy, to be honest with you, because Emma wasn't aware of polygamy in 1840 by anybody's account. But he did go to Springfield, as you pointed out, I think, and, and helped pass the Nauvoo Charter and came back and was elected elected mayor. Now, you're not going to be elected mayor if Joseph doesn't like you. Not in Nauvoo, even in 1841. And so he's elected mayor. And then Joseph gives him a patriarchal blessing in 1841. And it's actually found in section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants today. And he had it published. And, and it has some pretty amazing promises in it. Not the kind of thing that's going to happen to just anybody. There's support that he was close to Joseph. And then probably the most remarkable thing of all is that in April of 1841, he was sustained as an assistant president to the first presidency. Now, that's a position that has never been filled before or after, and exactly what it meant, we aren't sure, but but people take that uh, sustaining as actual solid evidence that Joseph and John C. Bennett were uh, very close in all of their dealings, and uh, particularly as polygamy was unfolding at that time, they seem certain that Bennett couldn't have been kept out of the loop being an assistant president at that time. Um, the story goes on because in 1842, the Relief Society is formed, and we find that there are lots of references in the Relief Society to immorality in Nauvoo. And a number of authors uh, assert that that immorality is Joseph Smith's polygamy, at least in part. And I, I've had some, some very uh, spirited discussions with Cheryl Bruno, with whom I, I totally disagree, and she knows this. She's, she's a good sport about it, but she argues that the Relief Society is where there's these veiled uh, accusations against Joseph and polygamy, and I argue that she has no evidence and it's very ambiguous, but but this is the way people are, are portraying Bennett, and if it's true, then Joseph was a scoundrel. There's just no question, because the way Bennett describes him, uh, Bennett uh, describes Joseph as, as being a very much a hypocrite and an adulterer. And so uh, he's excommunicated in uh, June of 1842. He leaves town. And then uh, because he has formidable skills and he's a good writer, in fact, he's a very good writer, um, and he, he knows the how to get something published. He sends letters to many different newspapers and then they're reprinted later publishes a book in 42, and Joseph Smith is, is scandalized to the max in that book. There's not actually a lot new in the book. There's a few things. Most of it had been in letters that had already been published. But but he really portrays Joseph uh, as not just a polygamist, but as somebody who's driven by libido to, to conquer women uh, in, in a sexual conquest kind of a way. And, and this has been embraced by quite a few, uh, authors. Even as late as last year, there was a new book came that has come out and, and basically said that the Relief Society was put together to, to shield Joseph and, and Bennett for, from accusations of polygamy and things of this nature. So as Don Bradley and I got together the evidences, we, we began to discover some things that, uh, that give us pause on whether that reconstruction, even though it is so popular, really is an accurate uh, description of what happened. So I don't know, Lindsay, do you have any questions to this point? Yeah. So this is this is sort of, I guess, my disagreement with you is we are acknowledging the same the same evidence, but I do take something differently from it. My my overall view of Bennett is that he came in, he was this uh, larger than life character 
Joseph was fascinated with him and he started to influence Joseph until Joseph couldn't control him. And then, you know, they had to figure out how to deal with Bennett. So I guess the part that I'm confused on is you're saying that he has this new position as assistant to the president and he, it, there's a scripture. He's been canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants. And yet you're arguing that he didn't have that much influence on Joseph or the inner circle. So explain that to me a little bit more. No, no, I really appreciate that because you you reflect the the popular view. I call it, and I don't mean this to be critical of you personally, but it's the Fon Brody Express. Okay, it's, uh, it's let's jump on Fon Brody had it right, and and that's kind of how she describes Bennett and Joseph as well. But but let's just look at a few evidences that you may not be aware of. First off, um, I mentioned the patriarchal blessing that is that is currently in. In section 124 was given in January of 1841. So Bennett has only been there three or four months. But what's interesting is it comprises verses 16 and 17. And in those two verses, there are three if clauses. Now that may not sound like a really big deal, but it's, it's, there are great blessings promised to him if he received counsel, if he do this and What's interesting is five other men are mentioned in the verses around verses 16 and 17. Robert Thompson in 12 and four through 14, Hiram Smith in 15, Lyman White in 18, 19, George Miller in 20 and 21, and John Snyder in verse 22. None of those men have any kind of ifs in their verses. And if you look at the rest of the revelation, we find that there are some ifs that are associated with discussion of the Nauvoo house and the temple building. But the only people with significant numbers of ifs were William Law, who had four ifs between 82 and 90. Sidney Rigdon had four ifs between 103 and 110. And Robert D. Foster had one in 115, 116. All three of those men apostatized as well. But and, all, but the majority of those men were in close relationship with Joseph at some point or another and had influence, right? Um, well, let's see. William, certainly William Law did and Sidney Rigdon did. Robert E. Foster did not at that time. But the point that I, I want to make is if Joseph Smith is treating Bennett so differently from Robert Thompson, Hiram, Lyman White, and Snyder, you, you wouldn't expect that to... And uh, increase his confidence in Bennett in in sharing things with him because uh, your point is well taken. But we also know that William Law didn't learn about pl- plural marriage until 1843, and Sidney Rigdon never was taught plural marriage, so far as we have any record. So, if we're talking about teachings about plural marriage, we could say very solidly that the four men with ifs never learned about it, or if they did, it wasn't till 1843. So that brings up another question for me, um, which is when John C. Bennett actually learned about plural marriage. And you actually were kind enough to help me with my last podcast with John Hamer, you know, regarding the Price's research about Joseph never practicing polygamy. Um, and you had pointed out that Bennett, years later, prints in the, I think, the Hawkeye, the Iowa Hawkeye, that Correct. Um, he never heard about plural marriage from Joseph. And even in your article, you talk about this. He goes on what, you know, he gets in trouble for something. I can't remember exactly what it was he had done this time. And he goes and um, proclaims publicly, I think in an affidavit even, that the gospel is full of virtue and there's no truth to the rumors. So he is clearly 
not being consistent in what he says, because then he'll go on later on to publish, you know, a book about all of these, these scandalous things Joseph is doing. So what is your take on when Bennett actually learns about plural marriage? Well, I think even a, a better question is from whom did he learn it? Because my position is he never once sat down with Joseph, that he heard rumors and there were lots of people hearing rumors. And I believe that he learned them in uh, early 1842 from Nancy Rigdon. He was Nancy's personal physician and Joseph had proposed to Nancy and Nancy turned him down flat. But I believe the information that Bennett had was primarily from Nancy because Nancy uh, might have known the names of some of Joseph's wives. Uh, We know that Joseph Smith would talk to potential wives and and tell them about other women who had agreed to be sealed to him. It was a pattern that we can identify. Um, So that's what I would say. But we honestly don't have any good documentation for when it might have been that he heard the, the solid evidence that Joseph was doing. Why would that be important? Can you explain to people why it would be important to know when Bennett knows about this or not? Well, yes, because he, he leaves Nauvoo in 1842 in June, July. And my argument is he didn't know officially that Joseph was doing plural marriage until maybe three or four months earlier, because there are people who want to say that they're in cahoots all through 1841, and there's there's just no evidence to support it. In fact, there is some good evidence that that uh, Joseph Smith kept him at arm's length, even though he was called as an assistant president. There is no evidence that he ever once met in council with the first presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve after they returned from England. I've documented, and you read it there in, in the uh, in the article, that many meetings were held. Bennett's not in any of them. There's not a single reference to him meeting in any kind of a confidential uh, meeting, but we have Brigham and Heber and other members of the Twelve that are there and on multiple occasions. So even though people want to read a lot into him being an assistant president, there is no evidence that he ever did anything of any uh, ecclesiastical significance in that calling um, beyond speaking in conference a couple of times in 40 and 40, late 41. Yeah, so, I think that's one of the most compelling um, arguments that you make in the in the article, which is his absence from the leadership. So uh, I guess maybe to give the listeners a background for those who are not familiar, and you tell me, Brian, if I get this wrong, I see Bennett, he he comes in, whether he finds out about it from Joseph or not, he, it's very possible he did find out from Nancy. He's a doctor, and it's said that he's practicing abortions. He was kind of known for that. I think Sarah Pratt is one of the biggest sources, and we can talk about the abortions in just a minute. But he also is said to take this idea of plural marriage and corrupt it. At least this is, I think, the general idea of what Bennett does, that he learns about polygamy from Joseph and he goes and practice what's he, what he calls spiritual wifery. And you'll hear Joseph and others use that term spiritual wifery later on to say we are not practicing spiritual wifery because it becomes a talk of the town. Bennett has this new order of, some will call it free love, where he almost ritualizes sex with women. And maybe you can tell us about it. You write about it in the article, the three degrees that he has with women where they veil their faces and things like that. So I just think that this is important to know about him so people understand why his accusations um, have some context in what we're talking about. Well, and I, I appreciate that. I think you you got it all right. That's that's great. The uh, An alternate uh, view of this, though, 
And something that is generally ignored by most of the uh, historians to write on this is that John C. Bennett had a reputation as a womanizer, as an adulterer, prior to coming to Nauvoo. In fact, he had a wife and children, and he just left them and showed up in Nauvoo and passed himself off as a bachelor. And they went and sent people early on. This is like early 1841. Joseph sent George Miller and then later Hiram Smith, who went and, and did some research. And they discovered very early on that Bennett was not being truthful. So, see, Bennett didn't need Joseph's teachings about polygamy and didn't need to corrupt those to, to be doing what he did all the way through Nauvoo. He was already an adulterer before he got there. His wife reported that if, after being accused of breaking up a family by, by, uh, seducing the wife, the uh, John Bennett's wife said that it was the seventh couple that he had separated since she had married Bennett. So he has this this tradition. He has this this momentum of, of illicit sexual activity before he even gets to Nauvoo. And my contention is he just continues to do it. And then sometime in early 1842, he hears about polygamy and starts to exploit it. But another evidence that Bennett wasn't a polygamy insider is that he used the line that if we keep sex secret, then it's okay. If we don't have an accuser, then we are, are not going to be accused. And so secrecy was was highly elevated in his sexual uh, involvement with other women. See, and, and I reason- read, I read, tell me if this interpretation is wrong. I read that quote uh, where he says, there can be no um, accused if there's no accuser. I read that to mean if the women are fine with it, then what's the problem? Well, um, I haven't, I, that's not how I have taken it. And perhaps the reason is that Joseph Smith taught this over the pulpit, just speaking generally about, please don't be uh, criticizing, please don't be accusing each other. He said, you know, if you don't accuse me, I won't accuse you, and we'll all go into heaven together. And this was a public teaching, and Bennett latched onto it, and that's what uh, several women reported that was the line saying, oh, no, the leaders are doing it. You just have to keep it secret. Nobody can know about it, so they can't accuse us. And that's that, I think, is more consistent with his talk on on not accusing. But the key thing is, if Joseph had been teaching Bennett about celestial marriage, about eternal marriage and, and polygamy in that form, we probably might have expected Bennett to exploit some of those teachings. But he didn't. He exploited a public teaching, um, instead of saying, hey, look, Joseph has this secret celestial wifery stuff, and yeah, that means we can sleep together, and it's okay. We don't hear any of those reports from the women who were brought up to the Nauvoo High Council in May of 1842, and they were giving their stories. None of them are reporting any of that kind of discussion and persuasion from Bennett. Yeah, Bennett is speaking, you know, it said that he tells women that other leaders are doing it, and it's okay the thing that that gets interesting for me, though, is not necessarily, and I don't mean to dismiss the abuses that he does to other women, um, especially his wife beforehand, but when he starts to get in contact with Joseph, and I'm not saying Joseph necessarily at all instructs this, It's I think it's clear to me that John C. Bennett, like you said, is exploiting this and feels influenced by Joseph, but he really ritualizes uh, this sort of free love, and um, he mingles it with masonry and 
these three degrees, like, like we were talking about. And, um, so I just, I want to bring it up because I think it's so fascinating. Um, and just for the uh, audience, this article, I think, is coming out in the Summer uh, Journal of Mormon History, uh, if I remember correctly. But it's it's already been typeset, so it, it'll be out soon. But uh, Bennett did an interesting thing. In his book, he didn't mention it in his letters, but in his book, which came out in October, November of 1842, he described three levels of po- polygamy wives, even though only one of them has to have a marriage ceremony. But, but there was the Cyprian saints. They wore a white veil, and there were the chambered sisters of charity, which wore green veils, and the consecrates of the cloister or the cloistered saints who wore black. And the uh, the interesting thing is at the time that Bennett left Nauvoo, there were only Joseph Smith, Heber C. Kimball, and Brigham Young, who were polygamists. And the timeline for the unfolding of Joseph Smith's polygamy is very important because people assume, after reading Bennett, that there's this underground of all these polygamy wives and everything in Nauvoo at that point. And I'm arguing that Joseph had been sealed to at least a half a dozen women. I argue most of them were non-sexual, eternity-only marriages, that one or two um, were sexual. And then Heber and Brigham each had one wife, which who, with whom they could have had family. So we have three men, potentially four women, with, with whom there's actual full pl- uh, polygamy being practiced. And yet Bennett comes out and says that there's this underground polygamy system going on with three different levels, implying dozens and dozens of women. And in fact, he describes Emma as being the, uh, oh, I wish I could find what he calls Emma, but it's it's uh as the madame of, of all of this stuff and emma didn't even know about it so uh, it's over the top stuff in fact most of your historians acknowledge that this is not believable and and what i'm i'm trying to help us all understand here is where do we draw the line clearly bennett is not reliable in everything he said but he did identify some of joseph's plural wives and so somewhere in between we have to draw a line of what can we believe that is accurate that that bennett actually did know but everybody pretty well agrees this that these three levels were just fantasy yeah and you know in reading his expose i got to see one of the original copies and hold it at the church history library which was really cool i mean he, he like he details the the temple rituals, right, which are completely off. And we like, uh, and I think you bring this up in your article where he talks about the ceilings they anoint with oil, and there's really no evidence to suggest that there's any anointing with oil going on. So he's really, I do think that that is a very um, compelling argument that he is extrapolating all of these rumors and bits and pieces of things that he hears, and um, sort of running with it and clearly benefiting from it. I, the problem that I have that, that I've been, that your article has really sort of brought out for me when I was looking up, I was looking up 19th century abortion practices and I'm going to link this article. It's a fantastic, fascinating article um, by L magazine of all places. And it was about um, a woman who was known as Madame Restel. Her name was Anne Lohman, and she was a female doctor who practiced abortions in New York. Of course, she ends up getting imprisoned a few times and ends up ultimately taking her life, but her story's fascinating, so I'm going to link to that. But in reading her story and seeing how she was vilified at, during her time, and she would still be vilified now, when I view her her um, actions through a compassionate sort of feminist lens. She was really just trying to help women that were in bad, bad positions. It made me wonder if 
it would be absurd to think that perhaps we're viewing Bennett through a similar lens, not to compare him to Restell at all, because I think that their stories are separate. But because Bennett was so um, sexually, I don't want to say progressive, but maybe um, unorthodox at the time and, and inventive and such a big character, do you think that some of the recollections of him are at all unfair? Well, let me point out, there is no recollection of him performing an abortion in Nauvoo. We have uh, two or three women, and, and they're all in that last section, which I fortunately was able to add before this was, went back to general Mormon history because it became an issue on the uh, Internet. But all of the quotes that I've been able to find, and maybe, Lindsay, in your research, you found one that I've left out there, but I think there's just three. It's on uh, page 178, 79. Yeah, those were, the, those were, I only knew of two. So the, the third was kind of fun to find. Yeah, and we have him, uh, of course, an abortion can be performed two ways. You can give uh, women ergotrates, which just cause an abortion, among other things. And then you can also go in with a curette and uh, perform it manually. This is what we do. I, I've performed anesthesia for hundreds of these over the years. When a, a woman miscarries, but she doesn't expel all of the products of conception, then we put her off to sleep and the, and the surgeon can go in and, and finish that so that she isn't bleeding and potentially getting infected. But the problems uh, with Bennett performing this are, are twofold. Now, there's, there's only, as I said, by the time he leaves, we have three men and potentially four women by my count. And even if you wanted to double that, the, the idea that by the time he left that he had, there'd been enough pregnancies among Joseph Smith's followers to, to justify this in the, in the volume that Pratt says occurred, Sarah Pratt, um, it, it just isn't very plausible. Um, but the also to to perform the mechanical evacuation in an awake woman is incredibly painful. And uh, whether they could do it at all, and I don't want to get into the mechanics of it here in your podcast, but there's lots of reasons to think that it didn't happen at all. But if it did, it probably would have been with the women that he and his followers, that's John Bennett, and his followers impregnated, and they wanted to destroy that. Um, we don't find references to that specifically in any of the testimony that is existing from the Nauvoo High Council minutes, but it is possible that if a woman had talked of it, they might not have even recorded it. So I don't rule out as a possibility among the women that he and his followers seduced, but I, I, I believe it is very improbable that it would have had anything to do with Joseph Smith and polygamy. And of course, the other reason is that one of the reasons, not the most important, but for plural marriage and Joseph Smith's teachings is to multiply and replenish the earth and abortion just, 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 does just the opposite. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I agree with you on this point because it doesn't really matter to me if the wives of Joseph Smith had abortions because I think, especially in the context of later, of course, this is more of a frontier context. These women would have really valued their children with Joseph Smith on the one hand. But then we have, you know, the sort of lore of, you know, women saying on their deathbed, don't ever tell anyone, but you're the daughter of Joseph Smith. So it's hard to know if they would have valued these children or not. But that's not the thing that's interesting to me. I I find John C. Bennett interesting just in general, because we know that in any country in the world that does not have good access to health care, that abortions and violent abortions are quite common. And so there's an estimate um, that I read that it was, let me see, I've got it in front of me, that in the 19th century, it's estimated abortion rate jumped from every city and every 
25 to 35 live births during 1800 to 1830. There were five to six. And of course, that's a pretty high statistic, but women uh, viewed contraception in, in a different way. And so I don't think that we can say that women in Nauvoo weren't getting abortions because I think that the long lens of history has proven that desperate women, depending on whatever circumstances, will do desperate things. And so that is why I find John C. Bennett's practice of abortions interesting. I don't really find it interesting to say that this is why we don't have children from Joseph Smith. That it feels like politicizing this this issue and taking it to prove that Joseph is a bad person rather than like appreciating maybe the struggles that women had in the 19th century of their own health care. I mean, they couldn't, there weren't a lot of options for women, even married women. And in fact, some of the articles I read, the majority of abortions were from married women who had heart disease and liver failure and they had 11 children and they, they couldn't handle one more. And so that's why John C. Bennett is so fascinating to me because I agree with you. I don't think that he was in any way a hero. I do think it was self-serving and it kind of makes me uncomfortable to think that he was this healthcare practitioner to all these women <laughs> in Nauvoo. That's unsettling to me. Yeah, that's a good point. And, but let me, let me just say on this, on this particular subject of, of abortions in Nauvoo that it it uh, demonstrates a process and it just it doesn't happen just with polygamy but um, it's where we make an assumption about Joseph and then we can criticize him based on the assumption there is no evidence that Joseph would have tolerated it we don't have any statements specifically on abortion from any of the brethren of that period it just wasn't thought of or at least enough to, to for anybody to weigh in on it. You would think of it as murder today uh, through their eyes, but we're assuming there, so we don't want to do that. But but there is no evidence that it occurred, that they would have uh, approved of it. And so to say that it may have happened among Joseph, that he would have done it, is, is just pure speculation. And of course, as you pointed out, that speculation portrays Joseph in a negative light. And and it happens all the time that we make an assumption and then judge Joseph based on the assumption. And I that's why it's just important to get all the evidence out there. As you know, I've uploaded my my stuff to the website. I want us to work from evidence, not from assumption. I think Joseph uh, comes off just fine and, and we can all learn for ourselves. And I think, you know, especially in talking about this, when people say things I have learned over the years, I've not always been good at this, but I've learned Instead of saying, you know, all people, I say some people or uh, it may have happened because we, you know, when we're talking, inevitably talking about Joseph Smith's progeny, somebody will say, well, of course, because his wife's had abortions and that's stating it almost empirically. And it's not like you said, it's completely speculative. And I think it's really reductive of the struggles 19th century women had with their reproductive rights, which is an entirely different podcast. But John C. Bennett does bring that into focus. And for, for that, I do actually appreciate his story because I think that it was a, it was a concern amongst probably almost every woman how to deal with their family planning. And, um, John C. Bennett at least brings that conversation into light, albeit it's not a very rigorous one. It's usually just used, like you said, to defame Joseph Smith. Well, then I wish they could have talked about it back then. You bring up some really good points. Uh, how would you like to be a pioneer woman, mother of 10 or 12 with no contraception available, really other than abstinence and, and a husband who wants to be with you? I, 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 that, that to me is one of many challenges they faced. 
Yeah. And, you know, pregnancy was a gamble. A lot of times it was not a picnic back then. There there were a lot of challenges and the birth rates were a lot different than they are now. So, yeah, I think that that's interesting. Getting back to, to John C. Bennett and polygamy and to your article, you talk about his legacy and his influence on the saints. So what do you argue is his impact on Joseph, if any? I think Joseph, and he even said it himself, He, uh, it was in 1844, this is two years after Bennett is gone, or almost two years, and he uh, is sued by one of his followers, was it Higby or Foster? I think it was Higby, um, for some some allegation, I, I don't remember, it's in the, it's in the article, but um, in the his testimony, Joseph Smith um wanted to talk about Higby because Higby was one of Bennett's followers. And Joseph Smith in his testimony is quoted as saying that uh, one of the worst things that he had ever done was to exercise uh, forgiveness to these men on the promise that they would change their lives. And I think he learned after that, that mercy can really come back to, to get you. And, um, if you happen to believe the reconstruction that I try to outline in the latter part of my article, that in fact Joseph was behind the scenes forgiving and uh, letting giving Bennett a second chance, and he probably did this two or three times before he finally just said, "Okay, it's enough, uh, Bennett. We're we're parting ways," and probably didn't know how formidable Bennett would be as a as an enemy. But I think Joseph definitely changed on his willingness to tolerate. Um, immorality of, of any type in, in some of those who were close to him. So this brings up, I, I think the thing that I probably disagree with you and many, many others on is the treatment of Sarah Pratt in general, because just as a feminist woman, when I, you know, we, we have a lot of discussions on rape culture and victims of um, sexual assault and, and, victim blaming and all of that kind of thing. And I see classic patterns of that in the Sarah Pratt story. And I feel like Sarah Pratt's reputation and her character is used um, on both sides in, in a way that makes me uncomfortable. But um, in I read your article to sort of say that Sarah Pratt was in cahoots with Bennett and um, that that's why she makes, it makes her an unreliable witness. And I guess I know Sarah Pratt, you know, goes into the Utah period and she becomes very embittered about polygamy and all of this. But I think from my personal um, experiences that this woman had a lot to risk in the 19th century. And of course, Jill Geisner and I are going to be talking about her coming up, but she risks a lot in her reputation. I mean, women could be committed to an asylum on the say-so of any man. And so she's taking great risks to even explain these things that come out very publicly in this very shameful way. And so I don't really like the treatment of Sarah Pratt. Do you want to talk more about how you feel about Sarah Pratt and the story with Bennett? Sure. Um, I had to do a a bit of a, a condensation from a whole chapter that's in my book on Sarah and Orson and Joseph. But we, we've kind of been uh, given a... a, a an alternate view from Richard Van Wagner's book, uh, More on Polygamy, where he goes through and takes the evidence that Joseph, that John C. Bennett and Sarah Pratt were adulterers together, were, were having a sexual relationship. 
Um, and he just dismisses it out of hand. It's very unscholarly the way he deals with that evidence. And so I just line it up in my chapter in the book, and you get just a briefer view of it in, in the article. But the evidence that they were sexually involved is very strong. And any objective person, I, I seriously, or you said don't say any, but some, anyway, most, I think, would look at this evidence and say, yeah, Sarah and, and John Bennett are, are uh, involved. And Sarah had every reason to try to defend uh, a, a story that, that didn't put her in bad light. In fact, one of the accounts has Joseph intervening because of Sarah and Bennett and that uh, Sarah was angry and, and Joseph swore at Sarah and that there was a, a big to do whether Joseph would have talked to her about an eternal marriage, plural marriage or something of that nature. We don't know. It can be spun either way. But the one point that people need to recognize and just go to the evidence, if you want to disagree with me after you read the evidence, then that's fine. I'm not talking about you personally. Right, right, I'm just right. saying generally. Um, then obviously then we'll just disagree. But the evidence is very strong. There was a sexual relationship there. And that is going to color the interpretations of things that come thereafter. And and we do notice that afterwards uh, Orson Pratt uh, did believe Joseph's version, whereby initially he believed Sarah's. And then Sarah's trajectory throughout the rest of her life, um, of course, suggests that, that she may have could have had testimony problems. And you don't know, but but she did end up out of the church and excommunicated. Right, right. She had a rough road after this. And, and that's why I, I still have a hard time. But you, you're talking about the evidence. And this is something I want you to talk about, because this is what I really think um, anyone listening out there, somebody has to give you an award if they haven't done this already. Can you talk about the documentation in Mormon polygamy documents because, or sorry, Mormon documents, because you and, are you and Lara both doing this? Well, it, it started off, um, it, this, I don't know if I dare say this, but Fair Mormon um, actually came to me and said, Brian, have you thought about uploading your database? And I had, and uh, they actually provided the server space and it's right around 15 gigabytes, which if I had to do it on my own would Probably, I don't know what it would cost me, but it, it wouldn't be that easy to do. And Laura helped me, my wife helped me with the format and outline, but a couple of the Fair Mormon volunteers also helped get the website up. But I had to do each one of those entries, and there's, I'm trying to remember, 3,000 and something there. Um, I had to do every one of them myself. I had to classify it. I had to verify it. And there's still mistakes there. There's no editing, but... Hopefully somebody can do control F and, and we're talking about Mormon polygamy documents.org. And it's got all of my database up there. Everything that uh, I spent tens of thousands of dollars paying Don to round it up stuff. And you can just have it there. And in the last couple of years, since it's gone, since Don and I, since the book came out, we really haven't had too much new stuff come out. Joseph Johnston has some stuff I would have liked to have included. And there was another journal entry I would have included, but nothing of significance so far as what happened and, and everything. So that's kind of a little bit of the background. I'm, I'm mostly finished with the Joseph Smith part of it. There's a fundamentalist tab. And I know you've been working on that too, Lindsay. I don't know how you do it. Um, and that's a database I hope to expand upon. Um, and I'm waiting Yay. for a couple of collections in, in the hopes that they'll allow me to put them with, with the one that's already there. So we'll see. Yeah, this is a real gift to our community. And I hope everyone out there um, can thank Brian Hales for this because what you have essentially done is put every documentation on this website for people to go look. And you can 
go read it. And if you, if you say, I don't agree with Brian Hales on this or this or this, go read the evidence and make your own decision, come to your own conclusion. And that's what I've been trying to tell my listeners as well. I try to be very upfront with my biases as well, and they're filtered through my own lens. And so I'm always encouraging people to go do your own research. It's these things are important. If, if they were stories that didn't affect us, if I was an outsider that was just interested in Mormonism that maybe didn't have a stake or skin in this game, it might not be so. But I think a lot of us have skin in this game. And so go read the documentation. And I just, again, want to thank you for doing that. I think it's fantastic. You're very kind and you're a great advocate of the website. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. So what takeaways should we take about John C. Bennett? I think you've actually, in this podcast, helped change my mind a little bit and end with this article to show that, not that I ever thought Bennett was a reliable witness, but perhaps I can leave the door open a little bit more that maybe he wasn't as close to Joseph Smith as I initially would have thought. Well, what Bennett did and continues to do is provide... um, an alternate uh, description or history um, of how polygamy unfolded in Nauvoo. It's alternate from the one that I have found and believe in. Um, and it, it's, it's where the shenanigans of Bennett run a parallel course with Joseph, but never truly intersect. And that's my version. The the other version that he's provided that has been embraced by so many authors and others is that uh, they were kind of concocting these things together and it got a little out of hand. So Bennett had to throw or so Joseph Smith had to throw Bennett off. And and that seems to be a more popular view. But as as you've said, I just encourage us all to get back to the evidence. And if we really want to believe that, uh, you know, then I respect uh, our, our ability to disagree. Yeah. Um- one last question before I let you go. What happens to Bennett? Do we know what happens to him? Well, I, his, the book Saintly Scoundrel by Andrew Smith is just excellent. I think it's an award-winning book. and We'll link to it on, on this episode. Yeah. yeah, I don't think there's an online version. Maybe there is, but uh, uh, he follows Bennett through. And just as you uh, discussed very early in the podcast, the guy really is inventive. Uh, and he does uh, do a lot with tomatoes and poultry, as you said, and, and beyond that, I, I honestly can't remember. But it's not like he just stops uh, being the uh, entrepreneur and innovator that that he was. He doesn't. Uh, I, I don't think he gets actively involved in politics or, or in the military as he had done prior to Nauvoo. But uh, he continues to use the gifts that he had and. I don't remember if he settled down with another wife or got back with his wife. That that would be an interesting question to, to look at. It's probably in the book, but I can't remember. So, Well, in the spirit of storybook characters, I want him to move away to Deadwood and get shot in a gunfight, but I don't think that's what <laughs> there happens. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, Brian, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much for the contributions you've made to this history. Well, it's an honor for me to be on your podcast, Lindsay, and uh, to be a part of this amazing uh, hundred podcast series that you've done on polygamy yep. or getting ready to wind up. That is just fantastic. We're almost done. So, and do you want to make a plug for your new book while you're here? Oh, yeah. Thank you. My wife, Laura, and I have come out with a, it's about 220 page uh, book entitled Joseph Smith's Polygamy Toward a Better Understanding. And it's, it's a very, 
short version, but it, it contains everything. All of the controversies are mentioned, all of the things that unfolded. The first four chapters are on theology, which I think will, will surprise people because most of the time they don't worry about the theology because most authors think it was libido-driven. So those four chapters should be of interest. And then there's a, a bunch of history. And then the last half is just biographies. Some are longer than others of the 35 women that I believe and Laura and I, well, Laura believes it was 34. I believe it was 35, but there are 35 biographies of the women that, that I believe were sealed to Joseph Smith. And that isn't available even in the, the three volumes, the trilogy that uh, came out a couple of years ago. But thank you for letting me plug that. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that Laura mentioned that there are new biographies of some of these women in yes. the book. So I think that that is really exciting. And in the spirit of what this podcast is trying to do, I think it's fantastic. And so again, support. Mormon studies, support Mormon history, and go buy this book. So, Great. Thanks again, Brian, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. Appreciate it. <laughs>